Welcome to Paychecks Thrive, a business podcast where you'll hear timely insights to help you navigate marketplace dynamics and propel your business forward. Here's your host, Gene Marks. Hey, everybody. This is G. Marks, and welcome back to another episode of the Paychecks Thrive Podcast. Very, very happy that you are here to join us. I have somebody here with me today who I've been a longtime fan of, who I've followed online, uh, who I respect greatly as an economist and a thought leader, uh, Scott Galloway, who has written really just a wonderful book called Adrift, America in 100 Charts. Uh, Scott, first of all, when, did they, when was this book published? It's, pretty, it's fairly recent, 2022, right? Yeah, about six months ago. Yeah, about six months ago. Um, it's so. So, guys, if you haven't picked this book up, I, I highly recommend reading it. Mainly because it's not, it's 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 not a, I don't know, a typical nonfiction academic read. It's literally a hundred charts um, with Scott's thoughts on each of those charts, and then the book is sort of pulled together with you know Scott's overall thoughts on some of the big matters that impacts us all. And I know that we're all people running businesses. Um, but it is it, 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 it has business impact and, and life impact as well. Scott, what made you write this book? <laughs> it's funny. It's the easiest questions that are the most difficult to answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot about what ails us, so to speak. And I spent a lot of time writing. I have a newsletter that goes out to about 350,000 people every Friday called No Mercy, No Malice. And I'm fascinated with visuals. And one of the things I think I recognized early is that if you want to help people understand something or get them to really grasp it, it's much more impactful to try and distill it down to an image. We process imagery six to 60 times faster than words. If I said, Gene, there's a lion in your studio, get out, you would read it. Or if I sent it to you an email, you'd read it, process it, look around. If you saw a lion in your studio, you would know exactly what to do. You would just start running instinctively. And so I thought, how can I take the best charts uh, that we've produced over the last several years that sort of distill what I think are the biggest issues facing the U.S. and then provide some commentary. It's like a, it's how I like to read. I really enjoy visuals. So that was uh, trying to distill down to a finite number of kind of graspable concepts. What are the biggest issues facing us? And two, to communicate it using visuals. What was the process of? I mean, you you. Yeah, and your organization put together a bunch of charts over the years. Mm-hmm. Here you limited yourself to just 100. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious what criteria you used to select these 100 charts as you were going through all the stuff that you've done before. So the hard part is not picking the charts or writing up on each chart. The hard part is chunking it and creating an arc and a narrative. So the first chapter is, you know, the world we built. America has just a tremendous amount of accomplishments and things that we need to stop, take pause and recognize our collective achievement and hopefully use that as a means of feeling a little bit more camaraderie for one another. And then going on to, you know, the war against young people. So trying to chunk it. And so what I said is, all right, these are the four or five major themes. And then and then you try and create a narrative through these charts and then, you know, you end up with 120 or 80 and you, you dial up, you dial down the number of charts so you can have a title that fits. Um, but that's the hard part. That, that's the hardest part about writing, Gene. I don't know. Gene, do you write? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so you know what it's like? It's, it, writing, uh, writing is difficult. What's, what's really hard is, is editing. Creating, yeah, it's creating a narrative. <laughs> like, okay, where yeah. is this going? What's the point? You know, how do I land this thing? What... How does the first paragraph relate to the third? And should the third paragraph have gone first? 
So that's the hard part was the, the picking the hundred and then creating an arc and a narrative. You know, the, I, the other issue that you have with a book like this is that, you know, the day after you publish it, it's, you know, it's technically out of date, you know, I mean, you're dealing yeah. with rolling data. So yeah. what, how do you deal with that? And, and what is your plan? Is this the kind of book you think you'll, you'll be updating every few years? It's, it's an interesting idea. So I like the idea of, I immediately got called by someone who's much more qualified, like the top geopolitical guy in the world. He said, let's do the world in a hundred charts. Let's do, you know, let's do the UK in a hundred charts, you know, in a hundred yeah. charts, could you do a bunch yeah. of stuff? So I don't, I don't know if I'll, I don't know if I'll update it. The, I, I've had, all of my books have been somewhat perishable. My best selling book, I think to date was my first one, the four, where I talked about, I published it in 2017. And at that point, the only thing we were arguing in big tech was who was going to be president, Jeff Bezos or Sheryl Sandberg. And it ended up being, it started out as a love letter. I really do like these companies. I made a lot of money from them. They hire most of my students. And by the time I was done with the book and spending 18 months just marinating and everything big tech, the book ended up being a cautionary tale. And it, it ended up, the world came to me. You know, my publisher first said, do you really want, you know, can you really say this? Do you really think Sheryl Sandberg is not a good is not doing good for the world. And I'm like, no, this, you get, this is really dangerous stuff. Anyways, that book sold the best. The, the, they've mostly been perishable because they're about economics, but I, they still sell. The thing that sold the least well its first year, but has sold the same amount every year is my book on happiness because those themes are much more evergreen. Yeah. Uh, but if you really want something hard hitting, you either have to be incredibly spiritual and write something that stands the test of time. I don't, so far, I haven't demonstrated those skills. What I do is find something interesting that's going on right now and say, in as unfiltered a voice as possible, this is what I think is actually going on and what's going to happen. And I get a lot wrong, but people people are still generous with you because they think, well, if it makes me think, well, okay, that's, that's half the battle. But I, I love uh, writing about current events and then trying to project what I think is going to happen. The hard part is that the book industry is from pencil downs to when it's actually on the shelves is nine to 18 months, which I yeah. can't figure out why. And I've still never gotten a good, a good explanation, but yeah, you, the moment it's on the shelves, it starts becoming perishable. What's interesting is to go back though, because sometimes the stuff, obviously history repeats itself. Yeah. I can see this as a book that, okay, maybe it's not an annual revisit, but I can see 10 years from now, you coming back to it and saying, let's see how we did. Charts. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. You know, yeah. Just updating it and also maybe even updating your point of view. I mean, you know, yeah. wherever you're there right, you you're right and wrong, you're wrong. Um, okay. So as I told you before we started recording, like the, the people that listen to this podcast and watch us um, are primarily business owners, managers. These are employer owned businesses. That's our audience here. So yeah, it was not an easy task, but I, I picked out a few charts from the yep. book that have an impact on businesses. And I just thought maybe you can, you know, offer some some background and insight into them. So the first one is um, um, a chart that said an overwhelmed IRS. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about that chart. It, it, it basically shows, you know, what the IRS, how many people they were actually like auditing back in the day compared to now. <laughs> and, you know, you feel that the IRS needs a significant revamping as well. So tell us a little bit about the background to that chart. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's just pretty basic. There's an algebra of deterrence. The best cop on the beat is the deterrent effect. And that is if I rob a bank or if I assault somebody, there's a decent chance. What you need is the algebra of deterrence is very basic. It's the likelihood you'll get caught times the expected punishment it needs to be greater than the expected upside. 
And the algebra of deterrence is totally out of whack now. The smart thing to do in the U.S. is to, to cheat on your taxes. And when I say cheat, be exceptionally aggressive, lie, uh, because the the chances of you being audited, especially if you are a large taxpayer, have gone down because the tax code has gone from 40 pages to 400. And it's so complicated that if they audit a wealthy person, it takes a staff of two, three, six people, one, three, six months. And the the Republican Party, also with the help of the Democratic Party, because they have a lot of wealthy donors, has said, has positioned the IRS, not as the people who pay for the Navy, not as the people who pay for food stamps, not as the people who loan Elon Musk's nascent company money, but as bad people who are here to harass our citizens and has either kept their funding flat or actually in some years uh, reduced it. The result is, as tax as a tax code has been more, become more complex, the justification for allocating the types of finite resources you need to audit a wealthy person, the violations have to be so brazen that every year, more and more, the percentage of wealthy people that can be audited goes down. And where the automation is kicked in is that automation is slowly but surely creeping up through simple tax filers or lower middle income who just have a W-2, put down a number. So you're seeing audit rates increase across lower middle income households, and you're seeing them decline across uh, large income households. And uh, I think they, uh, what I will say is across my cohort, I'm lucky I'm at a point in my life where I've made some money, is the general viewpoint, the advice you get from your advisors on taxes when you're wealthy is be super aggressive because they just don't, quite frankly, have the resources to come after everybody. And I'm not saying that this deterrence is still, jail is still a, a fairly significant deterrence. So, you know, I wouldn't say people are encouraged to lie, but they're encouraged to be as aggressive as possible. And uh, the tax code has just become so filled with goodies for rich people. I'll use myself as an example. I sold my last company for $160 million. The first 10 million of me was tax-free, qualified small business, 1202. I think that's ridiculous. I don't, I don't understand the rationale. And when I say that, people will say, well, Scott, innovators are important and we need to encourage them to take risks and allocate their own capital to these small businesses. And that sounds great, but no entrepreneur mm -hmm. knows the tax code when they start a company. They don't start, they don't start companies thinking, well, I'm going to qualify for you know, qualified small business. That's not the way to start companies. The effective tax rate for billionaires is now, depending on how you look at it, a high of 17% and a low of seven. So every year there's new stuff kind of layered sure. into the tax. Five of the hundred, you know, five of the fortune 100 companies in the U.S. didn't pay any taxes last year. Right. So right. if you have GPS, you want to run a boat race at night and wealthy people and corporations have GPS so they create obstacles. If it, it, it just it, you make it more and more complex when you you have night vision. That plays to your advantage. Now, the myth, as I sound like you know Bernie Sanders meets Elizabeth Warren manifestation <laughs> era, the myth that the the left has tried to foment is that lower and middle income people have really gotten screwed. And there's some truth to that regarding the fact that they haven't shared in the prosperity we've recognized over the last forty years. Our GDP growth has been staggering. Our, we have consistently grown, unbelievable prosperity, not a lot of progress in lower middle income. But the people who really get screwed from a taxation standpoint are what I call the workhorses. A lawyer, a partner at a law firm, 
and her husband is a chiropractor. They've got the right skills, the right degrees. They make combined incomes of $1.2 million a year. They're killing it. But they just have their income. And it's if they live in a large urban metro where you can make that kind of money, where most big law firms are headquartered, or there's people who can spend the m- kind of money you need to go get adjusted or what have you, they're probably You're spending paying, a lot of it. <laughs> they're they're probably not only spending a lot of it, but they're probably paying an effective tax rate of forty five or fifty percent. Yeah. Once yeah. you make the jump to light speed, and the chiropractor can have twelve practices yeah. and has enough capital to start opening small businesses and putting them in LLCs. And he can start throwing all sorts of expenses at it. He can uh, maybe build something big enough that a PE shop comes and rolls up. And if he's held the stock in that company that owns 12 chiropractic clinics longer than five years, he qualifies for QSB. He pays 22.8% instead of 37%, on and on and on. If you make the jump to light speed, that is your own small business, or you make the majority of your business from investing in other businesses because you've been disciplined enough to save money and have had the money, your tax rate plummets. So the people who get kind of, I would say, most screwed in our society from a tax point are the kind of 90 to 99th percentile, the workhorses. And people don't feel sorry for them because cry me a river, you're making 500 grand a year. Right. But if you want to talk about who's paying the majority of our taxes and who's paying a 50, per- if you're a partner at Goldman Sachs and everyone likes to demonize them and you live in New York, you're probably paying 50 and you live in Short Hills, New Jersey, you're probably yeah. paying literally a tax rate of 50%. What I try to tell my client, and by the way, I'm a, a CPA, and uh, but I just wrote about this recently that you know my clients they complain because they get taxed uh, on their paper profits in their business, but that doesn't necessarily mean to what their cash flow is. You know, they might have showed a million dollars in profits during the year, but they reinvested a lot of it in inventory and capital equipment, and yeah. you know maybe they have fluctuations in receivables, not showing the cash, but they still got to pay the tax. And uh, in, in agreement with what you're saying, you know, you know, I, I try to explain to them that it's not. You know, you're, you're getting killed on your income. I, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna uh, argue with you on that. But you're building value. I mean, you, you have the benefit of being an owner of a company. You're taking your risks, but you're building this value that hopefully someday, uh, when it comes time to exit, uh, that's when you're going to reap your, you know, rewards. And hopefully, the estate tax exclusions remain at a mm-hmm. certain level that they are now. Uh, but it is, it's, it's just a long-term investment that that you're making. Um, Scott, let me keep going because there's there's too many other things. Um, you have another chart about privatized research and development versus privatized, you know, equals privatized pro, you know, progress. You say, um, and, and the conclusion is that you know, you know, there's been so much more done on the private sector versus the public sector, and that comes with risks to the economy and society. And um, I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on on what you mean, you know, by that and, and why, why has the private sector been dominating so much of the research that's out there? And even to add to this, you know, there's a whole debate going on with this research and development, uh, you know, deduction for expenses that businesses can no longer take this year unless there's a change to the tax code and whether or not that's going to have an impact on research and development. Give me your thoughts on privatized R&D. So, if you look at, uh, if you set out to build a trillion dollar market cap company, if that's your goal, I want to grow up to be the founder of a company that someday might be worth a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. The thing they all have in common is all of these companies build a thick layer of innovation on top of other people's investment. And when I say other people's investment, I mean middle class taxpayers who have funded GPS, who have funded vaccine research, who have funded microchip research, uh, who have funded uh, space technology. 
these, if you look at Apple, Google, you know, whether it's DARPA, whether it's GPS, whatever it is, whether it's charging stations being funded by the Infrastructure Act, the best way to make a lot of money is to create a way to repackage and kind of make a, a more consumable product of other people's investments. And so the spillover from uh, these huge staggering investments required in tech, from technology and the kind of exploratory um, sectors, only the government is willing to make those businesses. And then a lot of that innovation is privatized and they can recognize enormous upside. I, I don't think there is a company that's gotten over say a few hundred billion dollars that has not really, you know, free kind of free ridden or, you know, been a remora fish on the back of massive government investment. And whether it's Amazon and the U.S. Postal Service, all of them, you can point to like crazy tax credits and uh, infrastructure. The question is whether or not we have, if the government continue to make those, has the capital to make those sort of forward leading investments, or we just become totally dependent upon uh, private companies. And what you're seeing with private companies is uh, this is how a private company works. Does it do what's right for society? No. Um, they'll talk a lot about that's, that's way down the list. They're not bad people, but the incentives in a capitalist society to fly first class and have a broader selection set of mates because you're rich is so great that you will rationalize <laughs> asocial or at least amoral behavior. Right. Do they do what grows revenues? No. Do they do what grows the strategic advantage of the business? No. The majority of decisions of private companies are driven by the following thing. What will get the stock up in the next 12 to 48 months? Because that's how the people making the decisions get compensated. Right. And so the temptation to take your R&D from, you know, Apple spends, you know, less on R&D than I, IBM ever did. And they have spent, get this, Apple has spent, I think, a half a trillion dollars on share buybacks over the last 20 years. So Apple has spent more buying back their own stock <laughs> than the value. They could have bought almost every, if they'd just taken that cash, not bought back stock, but bought another company, they probably could have bought any company in the world except the six most valuable. They could have, you know, enor just enormous investment. And so the temptation to cut, slowly but surely cut private R&D because you want to save capital for other things is pretty extraordinary. Now, having said that, yeah. small companies spend a lot of money on R&D. It's a dance, but in general, I find that government is sort of over, underfunded. We demonize it, which, which, which leads to the self-fulfilling prophecy where we cut the funding and you go to the DMV. A lot of people's only interaction with the government is the DMV and they're like, the government's awful. So I, I, I will vote for anyone who will lower my taxes and cut funding because they're idiots. And you end up with uh, a government that's just not as efficient, doesn't do as much work. We become more reliant on private companies. So it's a balance. I don't know if there's a sweet spot, but I'm not comfortable with, you know, the same argument can be made for wealthy people, that wealthy people in America are very generous because they make a ton of money. They get midlife crises, so they start giving a lot of it away in nonprofit. That is very good. But what Anand Girdadas would say is, should rich people really be shaping what public policy is? Or should we be paying more taxes and then elected representatives? You know, uh, rich people generally aren't going to like donate money for prison reform or, you know, or, uh, or, or you know, opium or opiate rehab. They, mm -hmm. they invest in, you know, the new 
Paulson School of Engineering at Harvard. Right. Right. So the right. very wealthy people kind of have their own gigs, their own pet projects. So I don't know if I don't know if uh, I still like the government as the premier. If you if you think about the most successful venture capitalists in history, it's been the U.S. government, hmm. and that is the investments. If you look at any, like I said, any trillion dollar plus company, it's from these remarkable forward leaning visionary investments the government made in space, location technology, whatever it might be. So I like the idea of a better funded government that is still making these really forward leaning investments. Okay. You have another chart in this book that addresses minimum wage, mm -hmm. um, and it shows that you know based on total economic productivity, which I'm going to ask you to define in a minute. Um, you know our minimum wage at a federal level, um, which right now is at seven twenty-five an hour, should really be twenty-two dollars and eighteen cents an hour if it kept up with our total economic productivity. So first of all, if I can ask you to define what you mean by total economic productivity. And then also to talk to me about your thoughts on minimum wage. Is this chart, are, are you saying by this chart that you, you, you support an increase in the federal minimum wage to as high as $22.18 an hour? Or is this mm -hmm. just your, just what you think it should, what, what, what the data is telling you it should be? I don't know if my, and, uh, and now you're, you're, I think I'm going to fail this Jeopardy question. I don't know if that's just if it was on an inflation adjusted basis or if it was just how much our GDP has increased per capita. In other words, at $7.25, I think if minimum wage had just kept pace with our increase in gross domestic product, mm -hmm. it'd be at about 22 bucks a share. Or I'm sorry, 22 bucks an hour. An hour, right. And my feeling is, I think, and, and conservatives will hate this, I think we should have $25 an hour federally mandated minimum wage. And I think there should be certain exceptions. If you live in Alabama and you can, uh, your minimum wage should be maybe some sort of algorithm of you, if you're going to work 40, if you're going to expect someone to work 40 or 50 hours a week, they can't live in poverty. And in this region, to be above the poverty line, you need to make $19 an hour. In New York, it would be at least 23 or 25. And you would see Walmart stock get cut in half, McDonald's stock get cut in half, and it would be worth it. I think that um, America's brand or our culture is about a few things. I think we're generous people. I think we're courageous. Um, I think we're willing to deliver violence anywhere in the world to protect our interests. Uh, we're creative. But at the end of the day, or one of the core associates, I think we work. At the same time, I think you have to always ensure there's a certain level of dignity in that. And I think unions have failed. I think they are a failed construct. And 39 of the 40 Western nations that have uni unions, they've lost, they've, they've shed massive membership. They've been cut, it's been cut in half, union membership in the US. And they've been the perfect enemy for corporations because they're generally lame, corrupt, disorganized, inefficient. And the media will get all hopped up because one Starbucks in Wausau, Wisconsin gets unionized. But I can almost guarantee you, over any extended period of time, they lose they lose membership. I like the idea, dignity of work, uh, a unified body to negotiate with management who is more sophisticated, has more money to hire advisors, PR campaigns. I think there should be one union. I think it should be the federal government. And I think if you look at what would happen, you know, if we took minimum wage to where productivity would have taken it from the 70s, if people at low skilled or medium skilled had been able to just kept pace with the growth of the economy, you know, I look at what would that do for obesity? What would that mm -hmm. do for divorce rates? Divorce rates are directly correlated to economic strain in a household. Mm -hmm. What would that do for opioid addiction? And there's no free lunch. 
a lot of taco trucks would go out of business. A lot mm -hmm. of businesses are dependent upon nine, $9 an hour wages. But I think if you look at food insecurity in homes, um, I, I just think the, the benefits of immediately leveling up people who don't have a lot of skills or live in areas with, uh, where there aren't uh, high paying jobs, I think you pay a cost for it. I think a lot of small businesses would go out of business. But what we've seen is in the states that have increased minimum wage, the economy and employment's actually grown because the wonderful mm -hmm. thing about lower middle income people is you give them another thousand bucks, they spend it all. Mm -hmm. They recirculate it back into the economy. Mm -hmm. So there's a limit. I'm not saying 50 bucks an hour. Uh, there's a limit. At some point, you would wipe out too many small businesses. But we have gotten so far out of whack that I do but, think somewhere between 20 and 25 bucks an hour probably makes sense. Do you think it's a national decision or a more localized decision? Do you think that the uh, the small business in you know Kentucky should be paying the same minimum wage as their counterparts, say, in you know Los Angeles? Well, ideally, it's a local decision, but it just doesn't happen that way. I would what I would suggest is. So the answer is, is it local or federal? I think the answer is yes. And that is, I think the uh, minimum wage that says the minimum wage in any district is an algorithm that says, if you work 40 hours a week, you're not going to live in poverty. Right. And that might be 26 bucks an hour in Brooklyn, and it might be 16 in Tuscaloosa. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, uh, so I think you do have to adjust for the economic realities there are just some, there are just, there are some places that, where there's an Amazon factory warehouse where if you make 18 bucks an hour and your husband works there and he makes 18 bucks an hour, you can string together a decent lifestyle on that if you, in summary. So I'm not saying go in and, and force it to go to 25 bucks and then Amazon thinks, well, why the hell are we in Alabama? <laughs> Let's get out of here. Uh, but I, I do think that dignity and work um, uh, is really important in the United States. And I think that, that poverty working, the working poor, I think that correlation with diabetes, bad health outcomes, ultimately things that end up costing taxpayers in the form of incarceration, um, divorce is economically expensive for Americans because you end up with single, uh, single family households and kids just don't do nearly as well in single parent households. Dan Quayle was right. You do need two parents where he was wrong as it doesn't matter if it's two men or two women. What's interesting, and I'm going a little bit off script here, is that girls in single parent homes actually have similar outcomes. It's boys interesting. that come off the rails. It ends up that young men or boys are physically stronger and emotionally and mentally weaker than their yeah. female counterparts. So I, I, look, I think, I'll, I think that the massive number of unions are a total failure. I've been on a lot of corporate boards the union people come in, and these are really liberal companies, and we tear them limb from limb. Right. Slowly but surely, methodically. And we all hope that they've just, they have failed the middle class. They worked really well, World War II to the 80s. They no longer work. I'd like to see the federal government step in because for two people to be working their asses off 40 or 50 hours a week and be living in poverty, that's just inexcusable to, for me in the, in the wealthiest nation in the world. And we can absolutely afford it. Scott, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, obviously, just scratch the surface of what's in this book. Um, and your responses are fascinating. So, uh, you, know, you know, for all of you guys who will be buying this book, uh, Scott wraps things up with, with, with things that, that we must do. Right? You know, and this is Scott's thoughts on policy changes that need to be enacted to, to make a better America, you know, if I'm defining that right or, you know, or, or describing that right, Scott. So let me just pick out one of those things because mm -hmm. to me it's so controversial and you would just, you just, 
pissed off the left, you know, before with your comments on unionization and, and uh, you know, you know, uh, females, you know, uh, you know, learning better at home than um, than males. But um, on the right hand side, I'll give you a chance to piss off you know, the, the right of center people. One of the things that you say we must do would be to enact a one time wealth tax. So hugely controversial issue. And I just let me just ask you, what do you mean by that? Why do you think that that's you know, important to do? How would you implement something like that? I'm not sure it works since I wrote it. I've done more research on it. And the one time that the place they tried to do it in France, the wealthiest man in Europe moved to Belgium. So <laughs> uh, because the, the, real, the top 1% are the most mobile people in the world. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to be clear. I get it wrong all the time. I'm not sure a one-time wealth tax. And the more I learn about it, I'm not sure it works. What I do, what I do think is that you should eliminate capital gains. I think we should, I'm, I'm a fan of Reagan. I think we should have one uh, form of income. I don't income. understand. Yeah, I don't understand why the income someone earns from their sweat is not as noble as the income that money earns. I don't, right. I don't think there's any excuse for it. You have income from your investments, you have income. I mean, I understand, I understand it effectively. I mean, this is what has gone on. Old people vote, old people have money. People who vote and people who have money have literally overrun Washington. The demo in democracy is working too well. If you think of money as voting power and old people, they vote. The result is the following. We have taken our economy and we have totally tilted it towards reallocating trillions of dollars from people under the age of 40 to people over the age of 40. 40 years ago, uh, well, a seven-year-old now on average is 72% wealthier than he was 40 years ago. A person under the age of 40 is on average 24% less wealthy than she was 40 years ago. Hmm. And just a couple examples of how that's happened is the two biggest tax deductions are capital gains. Mm -hmm. Why, when I sell a stock, I get most of my money from investments now because I'm old mm -hmm. and I'm wealthy. I pay 22.8. Young people get the majority of their income from current income, which is 37 or 38% at the highest level. Old people own stocks. Young people own their time and work. The second biggest tax deduction, mortgage interest. Who owns homes? Old, wealthy people like me. Who rents? Young people trying to get ahead in this. So we, we reallocate a trillion and a half dollars in wealth from people who are young and working age to people in Social Security. The wealthiest generation in the history of the planet is getting a trillion and a half dollars reallocated from young people to them. It kind of it just makes no sense. Almost if you look at our tax code, almost everything says, how do we take money out of younger pockets and put it into older pockets? So the, the one time wealth tax, I'm a big fan of billionaires. I think we need them. I aspire to be one. I think capitalism taps into people's self-interest. I think it's, I think we need billionaires. Should three people in America have the aggregate wealth of the bottom half of America? Should my tax rate plummet to 16 or 17% once I get above a certain income level? It just feels as if the tax rate, our tax policy has become regressive and the top 10% or excuse me, really the top 1% are not, for lack of a better term, paying their fair share. So probably rather than a wealth tax, a one-time wealth tax, we should just eliminate certain tax deductions I mean, I could go on. I'm doing opportunity zones this year. 
That's just a giveaway to the rich. It is. It's just a giveaway to them. Bottom line, thanks very mm-hmm. much. I'll take it. And I take advantage of all these things because I'm not going to disarm unilaterally. And whenever I get on a show and some kind of tax guy says to me, well, Scott, just send a check to the government. Come on, boss. <laughs> Come on. I'm, I'm not going to. I'm going to take advantage. Just like every prisoners of war of war's obligation is to try and escape. Every person's obligation is to legally pay as little taxes as possible. Why on earth is my social security tax capped at one hundred and fifty or one hundred sixty thousand dollars. What what uh, what's the logic there? Poor people, poor middle class earners pay six percent. I pay point six percent. Give me the logic. I shouldn't have to support seniors. I don't want to live in a. I don't need to live in a society where there's no senior poverty. So if you if you really look at the major tax shifts over the last fifty years, when I'm really on a rant now, Gene, but I think the greatest end of the greatest innovation in history, I think, is the American middle class. It, they, they, they pay the majority of taxes. Show me a Nobel Prize winner, someone who wins a Pulitzer, someone who, someone who, who is a general in the army, someone who starts a great nonprofit, someone who starts an amazing company. 80, 90% of the time, they come out of the middle class of America. The middle class in America has produced more righteousness, more economic opportunity than any it's the, the ultimate innovation isn't the iPhone. It's not the microchip. It's the American middle class. And we like to think that it just happened on its own. It didn't. It happened when a bunch of men came back from World War II and we made a staggering investment in them in the form of subsidized housing and free education. And we leveled them up. And among us, other things, we made them really attractive to women so they could form households and have a shit ton of kids. And we paid them really well because we had made such an investment in manufacturing technology that they had really, really good jobs. If you don't maintain that innovation, you're, you end up with a society that's not nearly as great. Show me how a middle class is doing. I'll show you how the nation is doing. What do you know? China's brought 500 million people into the middle class the last 40 years. We have shed 10 million people. Relatively speaking, who's done better from where they were 40 years ago? The life expectancy in China has gone from 47 to 77. And the United States life expectancy has declined four out of the last five years. So everything I kind of, if I were to come up with one lesson, the middle class is there's just the American middle class, there's nothing like it. It's the greatest source of prosperity and good in history. And it's worth investing in. And the middle class, uh, we made massive investments, a $500 billion transfer or National Highway Infrastructure Act. And also the top tax rate uh, during Eisenhower was 92%. Should it be 92% now? No, that's too high. I think once you get above 50 and you feel like you're working for the government, that probably disincentivizes you. But should it be 17? Should it be nine for billionaires? So it feels like it's really swung way too far away from the middle class and towards really wealthy people and, it, and corporations. It strikes me that if we, if we have corporations constantly moving overseas and, and now 55% of, I think, all corporate taxes are, are taxed offshore, Right. Right. Who's going to pay? I, I'm not even talking about the liberal program. I'm not going to talk about whatever you want to, you know, food stamps. Who's going to pay for our Navy? At some point, you know, at some point we got to pay for this stuff and we can't just keep putting it on our kids and our grandkids credit card. At some point we got to pay for it. So uh, it's all a long winded way of saying I'm not sure a one time wealth tax works. I recognize that now. But the the theme, the song remains the same. And that is it's America is supposed to have most Americans agree we should have a progressive tax structure. It's progressive all the way up until about the 99th percentile. And then it plummets 
And more and more of our income is being crowded into that 1% that's paying a lower tax rate, which will make the middle class unsustainable. And you see it in weird ways. When I applied to UCLA, the acceptance rate was 76%. Now it's 9%. And if you're from the top 1% income earning households, your kid is 77 times more likely to go to an elite university than if you're from the bottom 99. Is right. that the world we want? You know, we seem to have fallen out of love with the middle class and we seem to have this idolatry of the top 1%. And I think that America is not that. That's the Hunger Games. We need to go back to where we were and fall back in love with unremarkable middle class kids. Jesus, Scott, you're on a roll. That's all I can say. <laughs> it's the math. It's the math, Gene. <laughs> Something that. Uh, hey, great points of view. Uh, great insights. The book is called Adrift, America in 100 Charts. I've been speaking to Scott Galloway. Uh, Scott, how can we reach you, find out more about you, subscribe to you? Uh, uh, that's a generous question. I'm Prof Galloway on Twitter. I have a newsletter that comes out once a week called No Mercy, No Malice. I have two podcasts, the Prof G Pod and Pivot. I'm everywhere. To resist is futile. I'm literally, I'm, <laughs> I'm like AOL in the 90s. Like you open your cereal box and you see a disc in there and think, how the hell did this I was about to in? say, if I see a CD in the mail from you, I'll know, yeah, you know, it. I'll, I'll know you certainly are everywhere. Hey, thanks a lot for joining me. Uh, it was a great conversation. I'd love to speak again. Again, we've, we've scratched the surface of the type of topics I want to talk about with you, but I, I do appreciate your insights and I know our audience will as well. Do you have a topic or a guest that you would like to hear on Thrive? Please let us know. Visit payx.me forward slash Thrive Topics and send us your ideas or matters of interest. Also, if your business is looking to simplify your HR, payroll, benefits, or insurance services, see how Paychex can help. Visit the resource hub at paychex.com forward slash works. That's W-O-R-X. Paychex can help manage those complexities while you focus on all the ways you want your business to thrive. I'm your host, Gene Marks, and thanks for joining us. Till next time, take care. This podcast is property of Paychecks Incorporated 2023. All rights reserved.